everybody. Welcome to another episode of Courtside with Beelins and Tennis, part of the Tennis Channel Podcast Network. We are so happy to have with us, with what we hope is the first of many episodes, with my new co-host tonight, Steve Flink. As many of you know, Steve's a sports journalist who has been a columnist and editor with such magazines as World Tennis Magazine, Tennis Magazine, Tennis Week, and he's also done a lot of work with Tennis Channel. In 2017, Steve was elected to the International Tennis Hall of Fame in the contributor category. We've had him on a couple times previously. I think I must have caught him in a lapse of judgment when he agreed to collaborate with me going forward, but I am thrilled <laughs> Steve agreed to do it, and it is my privilege again to welcome back to the pod Steve Flink. Steve, I'm looking at you now. You, you look great. You don't look too sleep deprived from Australia. Well, all I can say, David, is it's the first lap. Uh, there's, there's been no lapse in judgment on your part. I'm ha- happy to join you on these podcasts. Should be a lot of fun. Uh, it's not a lapse of judgment on my part. It may be a lapse of judgment on <laughs> your part for agreeing, but, but well, whatever it is, thanks so much. <laughs> um, just a kind of a description of what we will. Steve will be joining me a few times a month and we'll talk things, um, all things tennis. Now there'll be Um, sometimes when it's just me with a guest, there may be times when Steve and I have a guest on. So again, it may not be every week, but a a few times a month, Steve's going to hop on with me and we're going to, uh, discuss, uh, the tennis world and whatever it is we feel is, is relevant going on at the time. So with that, we are recording, I, I don't know how you define it the day of, or the day after, um, the, the men's final in Australia where Novak Djokovic just collected his ninth. Australian Open, which, which is crazy, and we're going to get to that. But I want to start with a few things um, that that led up to this Australian Open. And God bless Craig Tiley because that guy has not slept in in six months. And for us Chicago people, we know Craig from the University of Illinois as a national championship coach for the Illini. Um, the people that I know surrounded the programs say nothing but um, such great things and such high remarks for Craig. There was a great article I posted on Twitter about Craig talked a little bit about the stresses that he'd been going through. He actually sent his wife and his kids away during this time for a vacation, just because he knew he'd be no good when he got back at two 30 in the morning, every night. But, um, unbelievable effort by Craig Tiley and his team. No, absolutely. He did. You know, it, it, it was a yeoman's effort because there were so many obstacles and players getting on those planes and having to quarantine because people, had come down with COVID and then dealing with all dealing with for all those weeks and, and putting it all together. It was a really phenomenal effort on his part and all of tennis Australia for that matter. For sure. And and we'll start with, with the strict quarantine, right? Players arrived there. They could leave their room for tennis and fitness. I believe it was up to five hours, but then there was an even stricter quarantine as you kind of alluded to, certain people on the plane tested positive and those people were not allowed to leave their room at all, including women's finalist, Jen Brady. Um, that, that must've been unbelievable being locked in a hotel room for 14 days, no escape. And yet she did, she barely, she didn't complain about it at all. She seemed to be able to find a way to put it in a positive light and just enjoy herself and relax in the room. And then for her to, as you say, then to take, come out of that and come all the way to the finals before losing to Osaka was a remarkable on her part. You know, she's, she's a very bright personality for the women's game. They're lucky to have her. Yeah. A hundred percent. And now we go a few days before the Australian open starts, a hotel security guard test positive. where like 600 players were staying. Um, 
So then they had a massive test of all those, of all those players. Thankfully, all those players, their tests came back negative. Now, this is this is all before the, the tournament first ball. <laughs> it's just yeah. remarkable. I'd be a bit, David, of somewhat of what the U.S. Open went through last year, where there were some, you know, the Cincinnati and New York followed by the Open, and a few little cases early on. I guess coaches and. They, they definitely had some scary moments along the way, and yet the tournament came off like clockwork. And I feel the same way about what happened here. I mean, imagine if one of the leading players had suddenly come down with it and, and, and it started spreading, but they, they did a remarkable job. And same thing with having the fans gone for five days and then coming back again at the end was a really terrific way to complete the tournament. Yeah, we're going to get to that. So I want to talk uh, uh, just a couple things on the, on the first week, because the first week, it seems, you know, three months ago, but I want to talk um, to you. I want to hear your thoughts about two of the Aussies. And we've talked a lot about tennis, and I really haven't dove into this topic with you. Um, but well, let's first start with Tanzai Kokonakis, who is such a talent. He's only 24 years old. Um, you remember a few years back in Miami, he beat Roger Federer. I think it was sure do. I first sure or second do. round. Um, Roger may have had a buy in that. Um, he's been so injury prone. I've saw him play at the Winneka challenger, which is 25 minutes from my house. A couple of years ago, played great. He had to pull out, I think of his semifinal, uh, match. He's just been snake bitten by injuries, but he battled Tsitsipas, Stefano Tsitsipas for five sets. It was great to see him back on court. It was. It would have been a great, terrific win for him. It, 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 he, he's very entertaining, and you, you do feel badly for him. I don't think I've seen a player at his level be injured, be permanently injured the way he has been, and yet keep fighting back and keep coming back to play. And I'm sure even though he lost the match, it must have been gratifying to be out there in that setting and nearly beating a guy who's been in the semis be before, and it turned out was on his way to the semis again. And with fan, that there were fans still in the arena for that match. So to have his hometown fans see him yeah. play like that, uh, yeah, such a thrill. And then the other Aussie that I'm going to throw out there, and everybody knows who this guy is, is um, Nick Kyrgios. And, you know, he beats Umber, you know, great match, five-setter there. Um, was it five sets? I forget on Umber, it was a five sets. May have been. Yeah. But may have been. But then he played the match of the uh, – many say could be the match of the tournament – and Dominic team. And, you know, Nick, Nick could have won that match. And people said he may should have won that match. I mean, he, wins I would say, sorry to interrupt. That's exactly what I was going to say. He should have won the match. And uh, yeah. he, you're, you're up two sets to love with his serve and chance to break break point in the start of the third set that, that he said, he thought the match would have been over in like 25 minutes had he yep. won that. But then you got to give yourself more chances. You, you still got to put it away, even if it's going to be four. But once it went to a fifth, I think it was too much of a war of attrition. And those circumstances favored team. On the other hand, David, the poor team, I think, was surprisingly destroyed by this match. You know, he had nothing left when he played Dimitrov. I was yeah. surprised. He was one of the fittest players out there. And I thought he would have his day off. He'd recover. He'd be fine after Kyrgios. And he really wasn't. He was a shell of himself, you know, four, four and lovey went down. And that was, I was sorry to see that. So that was a sort of a TKO for Nick Kyrgios. It was. And, and <laughs> I think, uh, you know, Grigor had his own bad luck as the tournament went on, but he owes, uh, he owes Nick a, a free dinner or two because he got through uh, Dominic pretty easy because of the physical toll of the Kyrgios team match. I want to go back to Nick um, for a little bit. And the reason why he has so many unbelievable, first week matches and slams is because his ranking isn't 
to what it should be as far as his talent goes. And, you know, Nick has said in previous interviews that he, he has almost self-admittedly stated that he doesn't think he can win a slam just physically, his body going seven matches every day, you know, every other day. And because his ranking, again, is not as high as what it should be, he plays these unbelievable matches against these high, high-ranked players in the first week. And to me, it's almost like I don't think he cares whether it's in the first week or the second week. It's He loves the entertainment part of it. I want to hear your thoughts on, uh, on Nick Kyrgios. Well, I think you size that up well. He loves playing the, the best players. He was actually very, very sporting afterwards, very kind to team and, and lauded him for his great play and didn't moan about his missed chances. And no, he loves the he loves the atmospherics of these big contests against uh, well-known players and, and manages to sort of get himself just fired up enough against the others. But, you know, David, I've heard for years that his injury, th- th- these are not made up injuries. I think he's had a serious problem with his back for a long time. The people I've talked to on the inside have said that he might have been a good candidate for surgery and he just didn't want to do it for, and I, for good reasons, I'm sure, but he's never been able to sell, do himself. He's not Kokonakis, but he he's had too much to deal with on that front too. So we've really never had a chance to see in it on an extended basis, the best of Kyrgios, which is too bad. Still, that was a fleeting moment and a, a really compelling contest against team. Awesome. Yeah. Um, and then that, that night um, Djokovic and, Taylor Fritz started a little bit later. They're in the middle of their match, kind of towards uh, more towards the tail end of that match. Djokovic is dealing with his, uh, you know, abdominal injury. And with that, you have a five day lockdown go into effect where fans have to leave mid match. I mean, we've never in any sport. Have you seen anything like this before in history? No. And I have to say, not to far be it for me to question the the officials in the Australian Open who did a, a magnificent job, pretty much an impeccable job. I I'm a little baffled that they couldn't have allowed that crowd who were sitting at the Djokovic match say as soon as the match ends you must leave as opposed to making them leave mid match. I thought that was too bad. I know I'm sure they had very good reasons, David. They probably make me look like a fool for saying that, but from a distance that's how it appeared. It was a shame that they had to leave and then kind of weird for the players. And then when it all ended, Djokovic, who'd had the injury, the abdominal injury occurred when he was up two sets to love and they were one all in the third and he eventually wins in five and was so relieved. And here's this dead silent court, nobody around but him and Fritz. And he screamed out in utter relief because I think he honestly thought he wasn't going to get through that match. He was really in a lot of pain. And of course that extended, he was managing to take his days off after that. But that was a dramatic moment in the tournament, the battle with Fritz. Yeah, for, for sure. I'm just so pivotal. odd. Like you, I should say a pivotal moment in the tournament because Djokovic had barely enough to, to get through it after losing the third and fourth sets. And then things opened up for him. Yeah. And I echo your thoughts about, you know, maybe allowing the fans to stay. And I said the same thing to my wife, actually. But again, us being on the outside, there are probably reasons why they couldn't. I don't yeah. know that. So I'm not going to criticize uh, oh, no, the country is I agree with you. I'm just saying from our vantage point in uh, looking at it from the standpoint of the fans, because you and I as journalists, you know, we, we can relate to them. And it was a sh- it was sad that for them and also for the players, because they had that that that, you know, that atmosphere and the noise and the normal feelings of a match with spectators. And then they lost it. So it's one thing to start the match without any spectators, but to have to complete it that way when you 
had the, uh, the best of these fans initially was, was difficult for, for both Taylor and uh, Novak. And think about this. What if Kyrgios and team had started a little bit later and Kyrgios, his hometown, it's packed in there and they go into a fist set and those fans would have had to leave. Oh. That would have been crazy. Yeah, crazy. absolutely. Yeah. Um, no. So, so we go into the second week, we, we hit on this a little bit with Grigar Dimitrov and, I thought Grigar had an unbelievable opportunity because, as you said, he beat an exhausted team. Grigar, again, owes Nick Kyrgios beer, dinner, whatever for that match. Um, <laughs> then he plays the qualifier, right? He played he played Karatsov in the quarterfinals. And, yeah. and like, Grigar's got an unbelievable opportunity here. In the past, Grigar has played well in Australia. He gets a back injury or something yeah, happens with that. Yeah. Major bummer. Do you? Let me ask you this. Do you think Grigar... Do you think Grigor will win a Grand Slam? No, I don't. But I, I thought this was a nice opportunity to be in the semis. And Novak would have known he was in for some work against Grigor. The rallies could have been somewhat punishing and difficult. I think he would have made, gotten through that contest. But uh, no, I, but it was a big opportunity to be back in a semifinal again. And and for Grigor, that, that, that matters. So I felt sorry for him. He started off won the first set of that, of that quarter, you know, six, two, he was breezing. And then the back trouble started. Unfortunate for him. He's a very entertaining player with the one, one headed back end, a lot of variety off that side and just a very, a, a good athlete and very elegant in his way out on the court. So sorry to see it happen to him. Yeah. Agreed. Um, then you had a, a great quarterfinal match a little bit later on that second week with Rafael Nadal losing to Stefano Tsitsipas. Rafa up two sets to love. Almost never, ever, ever happens. You have that great stat that you tweeted out there. It's only been twice in his career that he's, other than the one to Tsitsipas, that he's lost two sets to love, right? Yeah, the Federer did it to him in Miami when Rafa was so young back in 05, and Rafa was up two sets to love, 4-1 in the third, and he eventually lost that set in a tiebreaker and went down in flames after that. He'd sort of burn himself out, which, of course, we didn't see much later in his career, but nice recovery for Federer. And then the other time was uh, uh, Fanini at the U.S. Yep. Open, 10 yep. years later, under the lights, night match. But Nadal, first, the first instance Nadal was too young. He, was still, he, was, he won the French a few months later, but he was still finding himself, still emerging in a way. And the second case with Fanini, Rafa was having a tough year. He'd been injured a lot, and he wasn't really at his very best, but still shocking that this would be the third time it would happen. And what was interesting here, David, was he was, he was so comfortable. He so comfortably won those first two sets. He, he never near losing his serve. And he, he, he had Sissipas totally at bay and all Stefanos was able to do was serve his way into a breaker in the third, just to give himself that chance. And surprisingly, Rafa really made some glaring errors in the tie break and overhead and even forehand, a two-hander. He made three or four, crucial unforced errors that cost him that tie break. And then it was really never the same again. Rafa suddenly, maybe this whole problem with his back leading up to the tournament, I'm not saying he was in pain again, but he just didn't look as quick and as, he didn't look like the, the normal Rafa, as he would put it. And those sets were close the last two, four and five, but it, it was not the same Nadal that had really dominated the first couple of sets. Still, Great effort from Sissipas to even beat a Nadal who's not who's slightly below par. That took that took real courage on on Stefanos's part. A hundred percent. Let's switch gears a little bit. We will eventually get back to the latter latter stages of the men's tournament. But I want to switch gears and I want to talk about Serena Williams because sure. a lot of sure. the talk on that was 
number 24, right? This could be it. I will say this about Serena. Watching her these two weeks, her movement was so much better than it has been the past couple of years. Her defense, her defensive skills were unbelievable. And one thing that I've noticed, it's, it's been frustrating to watch the last couple of years on her backhand. She does when she's not moving well, she does a lot of open stance, two-handed backhands, which causes a lot of errors. And I know when you're really stretched out, you sometimes have to go to that open stance, two-handed backhand, but that was not the case when she wasn't moving well. It was almost like she just was too slow to get that right foot over. I did not see those lazy, wide open, two-handed backhands this tournament, and she moved phenomenally. Did you see a marked improvement in this tournament? I did. It was very impressive. I will say this. I think part of it was, I mean, granted, Sabalenka was the one, you know, Sabalenka has a lot of power, and she can hit a lot of winners, and lots of pace off both sides, and Serena was definitely quick in that match and did a nice job to win in three. Uh, otherwise, you know, Simona Halep, you know, again, Serena can overpower Simona. And I think she was able to get on top of a lot of the rallies. She did, no doubt. I would definitely say far better than what we saw her moving in, in 18 or 19 or 20. Any of those years. Post-motherhood, let's put it that way. Best movement post-motherhood. But I did feel that it, it, it wasn't the same against Naomi played great and Naomi was a level higher than anybody she met, maybe two levels higher. And on that day, maybe a little tense, there were, who knows what the factors were, what was going on, what kind of inner turmoil was there with Serena, but I didn't feel she was quite as fast. It could have served her well in that match because Naomi was able to hit a lot of winners and open up the court. And I didn't think Serena had quite the same alacrity around the court as what we'd seen from her earlier. Still was a great tournament. But the baffling thing to me, she got so upset in the press conference, not because the questioner asked her anything that was really that uh, demanding or insensitive or anybody just said something about a bad day at the office. And she mm-hmm. halfway through the answer, she got up and left, which surprised me. The disappointment to me, David, was she had a great tournament. She should be very proud of it. You're 39 years old, still competing for majors, but I wish she would have given Naomi a little credit. Now, the fact is that the, the, um, the, 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 the of most reporters is to ask the player only about himself or herself. So the t- questions were being directed at Serena, what happened, what was wrong from your end, but I would have loved it if she would have volunteered and said, look, there was a great player on the other side of the net. I commend Naomi. I'm not happy with my game today, but Naomi played beautifully. We didn't hear that. That I thought was a little unfortunate, but boy, she has no reason, Serena, to not leave Melbourne proud Uh, because, you know, we had the four finals in 2018 and 19, Wimbledon and the Open, two each, and then the semis of the U.S. Open last year. And here she is back in the semis of the Australian. So I think there's still some encouraging signs that she can keep getting to the latter stages and who knows when it might finally break her way. Well, that was my next question. You know, will, will she get to number 24? Yeah, I still say the odds are slightly against, but I would not want to be betting a lot of money on that. I would not want to be putting my reputation on the line for that because I don't. she's such a supreme competitor and so prideful. And, in, and also part of the reason she wasn't moving so well, she just looked like she was so fit. I don't know. It was some special training she did in the office. And there are probably a lot of factors, but she she's in the condition. She doesn't look like a 39 year old by any means, any more than Roger does. So I just think that uh, that's all there. My concern is that there's all these different players There are four different players beat her in those Wimbledon U.S. Open finals. Naomi was one of them, obviously, and she repeats it in the semis here. And 
And then there was Azarenka at the U.S. Open last year. So there's a wider cast of players that can pick her off on their given days now, even when she's been on a good run. So uh, it, it, I say the odds are slightly against, but only slightly. Solid point. It's, you know, it would be something else if there was only one player that was kind of in her way. There's, there's a handful, at least a handful now. So um, solid point there. I want to talk about the, the final between Jen Brady and Naomi Osaka. And, uh, you know, this was a rematch of the 2020 U.S. Open semifinal, which for me and a lot of others, that was a sensational match. That level of play in New York uh, was insane. I, I, I felt it would be hard to match that level from both players um, because it was so high in New York. Two common themes um, came out of the, that match when I was thinking about it. And the first common theme is you see this a lot. Um, a champion, whether it's any really any sport, when you go through a tournament, you always have that one match game, whatever it may be that, you know, you're really struggling. You probably shouldn't have got out of it, but you did. And you got through it and some, something happens where the, the pressure eases or whatever, and you lock in and roll the rest of the way. The other theme that I want to point out, and I, and I tweeted to, to Greg Sharko and Craig O'Shaughnessy, the stat guys is you're serving, you're down a break point. You wind up holding, and then you break your opponent immediately the next game. It happens time and time again. And both those situations, both those themes that I'm talking about happened. Osaka was down match points against Garbi Muguruza. Probably shouldn't have gotten through. She did. She wins the tournament. And then again, the, the, the juncture change in the final with Brady at 4-4 in the first set when Jen had break point, didn't convert. Osaka holds 5-4. Boom, Osaka breaks Brady right away. It happens so many times. Yeah, you know, you're right. It, 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 it's not uncommon. I, I think that in the case of, um, of the final, and Naomi had the early break. Jen got back and then nearly broke her again. Had love 30, had chances 30, 40, but she couldn't seal it. And yeah, then the next game, the pressure's back on her. And that's one of the other factors, getting back to your point. In the case of, say, Naomi against Muguruza, your three, five, 15, 40, serve an ace, force an error, hold on. And now you go to your chair at the changeover and poor Muguruza is thinking, why didn't I put her away? I should have done it. And you, you can't get that out of your mind. That, that's, that make, that's even harder than if somebody breaks back to four all or something along those lines. At least you just, you just move on. You don't have time to think. The changeovers give you too much time to think. I think yeah. it hurts. But I will say this, David, I just feel that, that it wasn't an accident that Osaka beat Jen Brady more decisively this time. And that's no knock on Jen Brady. I just think that Naomi is fully coming into her own. And I think she played a level higher than she did in New York and made Jen start pressing more than Jen did in New York. And the, and it, and, and that was the difference. I think she put her under a lot more pressure and it was a first rate performance. And once again, you know, Jen was down two breaks in the second, got one of them back, made it interesting, but uh, Naomi was just too good. Naomi has seven titles. Four of them are slams. Uh, I'm no mathematician, but that's better than a 50% flip. I mean, that's pretty damn good. I, and she's got more in the, it, I mean, she, it, every indication says she's got more in the pipeline coming. I think so. And, and be, you know, she'll start getting in the habit of winning a lot more regular tournaments as well. She'll also get much better on grass and clay. She just doesn't have that much experience yet. She's had more experience on clay than grass. It will come. She's too good an athlete and too good a tennis player not to adapt herself to the other courts. But meanwhile, 
on hard court, she's just been phenomenal. And now this is the second time she's won two majors in a row because she didn't go to Roland Garros last year. So for her, this was two majors in a row, the U.S. Open and here. And it's so commendable. And you see her growing into her talent and you see her actually embracing the role of embracing the pressure and saying, you know, second place is not good enough. That reminded me a lot of Pete Sampras, what she said, that people don't remember who the runner-up was. The runner-up's name doesn't count. You don't see the runner-up's name on the trophy. You see the champion. And that's really a, a great way for her to look at it. The other quick point I'd like to make, David, she's in, the women's game needs continuity and she's going to provide it. We've had a lot of great players come along and win majors. And then the next one comes along and it's a new champion. And it's not to say that we don't need different players stand, uh, standing out and capturing the Grand Slam events. But Naomi's going to be the kind of player who for years now, I think, is going to keep picking them up on a regular basis, you know, two in a year, maybe three in a year another one the following year. And by the time she's through, I, I'll be shocked if she's not in double digits. I mean, four now, but I can't see it being anything less, anything less than 11 or 12, and maybe more than that. Speaking of double digits on slams, let's go back now to the men's side. And we had a final between Daniil Medvedev and Novak Djokovic. Daniil Medvedev, other than one five-set match, he was rocking and rolling and he was beating very good players in straight sets. Andre Rublev, Stefano Tsitsipas. I mean, I thought this match with between him and Novak was going to be close. Again, we don't know what Novak was dealing with with injury. Um, Route City, nine-time champ, Australian Open, Novak Djokovic. I mean, I, I don't know if there's much to say about the match. What, what are some of your thoughts, I guess? I'll ask you. Well I think it was a little misleading that he lost three of the last four to Medvedev. So that made a lot of people think, wait a minute, maybe Medvedev really has his number now. Maybe he's in his head. But there was there were circumstances behind all those defeats, not to make excuses for Novak. But I, I, don't, I saw all those matches. He wasn't always at his best. Those matches were spread out. Cincinnati 19, London at the end of last year in the round robin where Djokovic played one of his worst matches of the year and lost three and three. There were things that happened in those matches that, made me skeptical if a bunch of those defeats came in a very short span, but they didn't. So that's number one. Number two, Grand Slam final versus uh, round robin of London or semis of Cincinnati. It's a whole other league. And Novak was peaking, David, as he as he realized in the semis, you know, you beat a qualifier in the semis and people in Mackinac was saying, John Mackinac, well, look who he beat in the semis. I understand what he means, but Djokovic liked the way he was hitting the ball. He liked the way he felt. And you could see from the roundage match, which is the one after Fritz, to the Zarev match, which was a very well-played match that he also won in four, just like he beat Raonic, to, to the qualifier Koretsev in the semis, all the way to this final day, I just felt like he was, technically he was getting better with every match. So I think he came in so determined. Plus the other factor, David, is that he had that unfortunate incident at the U.S. Open where he got disqualified. Then he lost very badly to Rafa in the finals of the French after that one. I think his mind was still a little muddled by what had happened in New York. And now he was back at his best and, trying to make amends for that because you would have thought that he was going to win the, the U S open last year, if that incident hadn't occurred. So he, he did a tremendous job to overcome the, the injury, the abdominal to peak for the final today. And I think it all turned at the end of the first set. They'd had an exchange of breaks early three love for Djokovic three, all Medvedev comes back. And then we at five, six Djokovic managed to squeeze out one break to end that set. Then he came from a breakdown on the second and never looked back. So he wins the last two, two and two. He he played a really first rate match. I think Medvedev got a little frazzled. We've seen him sometimes 
sort of come apart and in a little bit of disarray mentally and still recover. You know, he's a funny, moody guy, and then he plugs back in and you see him get back to not missing a ball. But that wasn't possible today, the way that Novak Djokovic was playing. Djokovic played a really excellent final. Yeah, uh, agree there. And and we'll just go right now to what everybody likes to talk about is the race uh, of the most Grand Slams in ever, right? And right now you're 20, 20, and 18. 20 to me is not the, the magic number because that's a moving target. To me, it's um, having Novak thin out that differential. And I thought last year he did not do that and he missed the golden opportunity that you referred to by yeah. not winning the U.S. Open. Without, you know, the way he was playing, there was no reason why you would think he wouldn't have a good chance of, of right. getting 18 in New York. He didn't. So now he's now two behind. You do have the French Open next. You So, you know, Rafa unless something crazy happened, he Rafa is going to win more than one, you know, another French open at least. So it's not the, the number 20 that is so crucial. It's, it's again, minimizing that differential between Rafa and Roger and Novak. And um, the other thing to say about this in this discussion is not only did Djokovic miss out in New York by getting himself disqualified, which he knows was his own fault. Uh, and he just got outplayed in Paris. But the fact was, he had won the previous two Wimbledons. You know, he'd won Wimbledon in 11, 14, 15, 18, and 19, five times. And he was going for a third in a row, would have been, and we'll do it now this coming year. So he missed out on that as well. That was actually more harmful to him. Rafa hasn't played well at Wimbledon for a long time. Rafa, Roger would have had a shot, yes. But uh, so, so he all may that- have missed two opportunities. What you're saying, he must he may have missed two opportunities last year. Yeah, he did. He did. So, and then I think the other thing that hurt him was that long semifinal in the semis of Roland Garros against Sispadas. So he was up two sets to love in match point with a chance to be off the court in straight, and it ended up going five. And I think he took a lot out of himself in the process. But look what he did here, overcoming this injury. You know, he sort of made amends on his favorite court. And you're right. It's a moving target, 20. It is. It's unlikely, again, the odds against... I think the odds are, are, are less for Roger to win another major than Serena, by the way. Even though I, I think Serena... It's, I go slightly against the, the idea that she'd win one, but I give her a, a decent shot. Little less so with Roger, not impossible. So let's just say that he does stay at 20. You're right that it's hard to imagine Rafa doesn't win at least one more French. So then the burden's on Novak to really pick up those Wimbledons and U.S. Opens to add to the, all these Australians who's nine Australian and pick up his totals at the other two. And then if for some reason Rafa stumbles in Paris, has an injury, has a shocking loss to somebody else, Djokovic is certainly capable of beating anybody else in that field. And, and he's also has beaten Rafa once and came close another time. So it'll be very intriguing, especially with those two, to see how it all turns out. I mean, maybe maybe they're each up there around 22, 23 by the time they're done. There's no telling. You don't know. And, and similar to what you kind of said with Serena, now that there's not just, you know, maybe one person she has to deal with, there's a handful. You know, every year that goes by, Novak, if he's still trailing, it's not just going to be, Roger and Rafa that he's dealing with. These guys are better. Dominic team, Stefano Tsitsipas, Daniil Medvedev. Every year that goes by, it's going to get harder for Novak. So if oh, he's going to make his move, he has to make it soon. No, you're right. And he said it today. You know, it get it does get harder. It's not like it was 10 years ago. He is going to change his schedule because he's going to break Federer's record in a few weeks for most weeks career number one. 
that's meant a lot to him. Now he can get that off his mind and not worry about number one as much. It's going to be strictly the majors, I think, in his mind, targeting the majors. So, yeah, but you're right. The Medvedevs, the Cispedeses, the teams, these, these guys coming along are going to make it tougher, but they'll make it tougher on Rafa as well. And Novak, that was an important step today, an important statement today to say to Medvedev, you know, look, not so fast. I, 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 this is a big occasion and I, I'm not ready to let you take this away from me. So that I, psychologically, I think it was a very important win for him. I agree. Uh, ESPN showed a graphic of the big three domination. I had it on my phone. I, I wrote it down a little bit. Just want to share some of these numbers. Um, the big three have been ranked number one for 827 of the past 868 weeks. They've finished number one in 16 of the last 17 years. They've also won all four majors in a single year, eight different times. Could have been last year, too, if 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 uh, Djokovic doesn't get to fall. Right, true, true. Could have been nine. I mean, yeah. Unbelievable. These numbers are ridiculous. And I, I, I think we've talked about this before in any sport. If you're fourth best in whatever it is you do, fifth best in whatever it is you do, that's unbelievable. And the gap between the first three and then four and five in any other sport should not be as disparate as it is in this. In, in time. It's crazy. And it's funny. I you know I heard Brad Gilbert has talked a little bit about this too, but imagine if, Medvedev had won today, David. Let's just say he'd won it. So, so we'd really we'd gone from team at the Open to Rafa doing his usual thing in Paris, but coming back in Australia with another another first time victor in Medvedev that might have changed the, it could have sort of changed the collective thinking of the other players. But now, when Djokovic bears down hard again and does it again, and raises his record to nine and zero in Australian Open finals and takes another major, then then that's sort of a reminder to everybody else that he and Rafa aren't going away, nor for that matter is Roger, who's eager to come back. Wow. Well, Steve, uh, this is the third time I've had you on. The first time as, as my co-host. Again, I'm thrilled to have you on. For those, you guys all know Steve is a legend in this industry. I have the book with me right now, The Greatest Tennis Matches of All Time. He's had the greatest matches of the 20th centuries published that and again his newest book pete sampras greatness revisited get his books they're unbelievable poor pistol pete because at number 14 everyone was like holy smokes this is the standard will never get broken and then you got three guys who just blow it out of the water does well, not a- diminish does not diminish the greatness of pete sampras he was no no no, absolutely not but i will tell you that having done the written the book on him that he's also he's a big fan of all three of these guys too he does not begrudge them what they are doing and uh it's just too bad for all of us we couldn't have seen the four of them in the same era playing over and over and over again because sampras played one official match against federer at the 01 wimbledon that roger won in five never or never played rapper or novak what a joy it would have been to have all four of them around. Uh, you know, the, the, the head-to-head contest would have been just out of this world. Yeah, for sure. So with that, that is the first episode of uh, Steve joining me as a co-host. I'm going to have a couple guests and then we'll uh, just me and a, a couple other guests you'll be interested in. And then we're going to have Steve back on in a few weeks after uh, this, this, this virus, this tennis calendar it, things change. They, they, they change on an instant. So um, it'll be interesting to see what the rest of the year plays out. Steve, thank you for your time. It's always a blast talking with you. 
And again, thanks again for, for joining me on this ride, man. I'm looking forward to it. So am I, David. Enjoyed it immensely today. Thanks for having me on.